want to pray for our pastor, Ron, and also hope that he will really be able to rest this morning. He has served us so faithfully uh, over many decades, and uh, I'm glad to jump in. Uh, He uh, gave me a few texts to read, uh, to um, reflect with you on, and I hope that you will benefit from this. This is uh, uh, more like a meditation on a few uh, texts and um, thoughts. Uh, And I would like to frame it this way. We are this morning with the ascension of Christ, uh, returning to the faith in the eternal rule of Christ. And we compare it with the temporary rule of civil authorities. Uh, It has already been mentioned, this is election time in the United States. There are many issues across the world that deal with mostly the damaging effect of civil authorities. And um, uh, I don't know how it is with you, but uh, in my own personal life, I struggle with the reality of the impact of civil authorities, and I wrestle with the question of, does Christ truly rule? Is he actually uh, in authority? And so we're going to remember that a little bit and deal with our own ambivalence and to return as a people of God to affirming the ascension of Christ, but also his rule. And uh, I hope to give you a few examples of some people, including John and Tanya Kudi, but also a few people that I met in Ukraine in March of this year, uh, to give you a, a sense of encouragement of what God is doing. So the eternal rule of Christ on the one hand, and the temporary rule of civil authorities, as one of the law spheres that God has established for this time. And we need to pray for our rulers, civil authorities. We need to be engaged, involved. But uh, this morning before the Lord, we are uh, reflecting on the context within which we might enter this election period, uh, within which we might uh, think about this discourse. And in your bulletins, I think you have a text from John Stott that um, Ron wanted me to at least refer to and uh, read in excerpts <coughs> relating to the ascension of Jesus. And uh, those of you who uh, uh, know me a little bit, I, I think it is very significant that our confession as a people of God is not based on a religious doctrine. It is based on testimony. And uh, John Stott does a very good word uh, work here when he reflects uh, on the uh, section in Acts 1-9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. We have already heard that this morning. And so John Stott says there is widespread skepticism, I'm quoting here, whether the ascension of Jesus was a literal historical event. Surely critics say it belongs to a pre-scientific cosmology in which heaven was regarded as a up there, so that Jesus had to be taken up 
in order to get there. Must we not therefore demythologize the ascension? Then we can retain the truth that Jesus went to the Father while at the same time stripping it of its primitive mythological clothing. But there are two main reasons why we should reject this attempt to discredit the ascension as a literal event. And then uh, John Stott goes on to say it is an eyewitness account. Five times in this little section in Acts, uh, the emphasis is on the fact that this ascension was visible and was experienced and gone through not by one but by a group of eyewitnesses. So this question of eyewitness account and uh, being there with events that uh, defy our reason, where we cannot quite uh, go to, is uh, so important. And then uh, he also mentions, secondly, the visible ascension as a, um, uh, an event that had an intelligible purpose. Um, the reason for a public and visible ascension is, as John Stott says, surely that he wanted the disciples to know that he had gone for good. So, contrary to the appearances of Christ following his death and resurrection, now the ascension is a final event that marks the conclusion of his incarnation of his death and resurrection, of his post-resurrection teaching to this place of the ascension. So I think it is very important for us to reflect here, and some of you may doubt, some of you may struggle, some of you may say, uh, this is a nice story, but I can't really sink my teeth into it or place my heart upon it. This morning we have already heard about Matthew 28, and I would like to go there from Acts 1-9, a little back in the work of Jesus. And I want to present to you the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where Jesus speaks to the disciples uh, as a testimony to the uh, teaching of Jesus as the soon-to-be king of his people. In vision, Matthew 28, that you have heard many times, as the declaration of the soon-to-be-enthroned king who speaks to his new messianic people and gives instruction. It's a different thing than just a fireside chat and Jesus saying, uh, go, go make disciples. So the soon-to-be-enthroned king. I'm going to read Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and then uh, give you a few Old Testament echoes that basically places the Great Commission in the context of an authoritative messianic ruler who begins his work in this world, not in a naive way, but also not in a politicized way. It's very curious. So listen with new ears. In Matthew 28, 16, Jesus said, um, the, the account says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, 
They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This text that you have heard a hundred times teems with allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, But first, I want to contrast this text where Jesus speaks so powerfully as the soon-to-be-enthroned king with the temptation of Jesus where he is offered authority and power in this world. Listen to Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The question is not whether Jesus rules. The question is, on what basis, how, and with what reach, and with what relationship to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the fact that he rejects this authority, that Satan, the counterfeit authority, falsely offers the co-creator of this universe does not mean that Jesus rejects authority, rule, and governance. And so the first echo I want to give you is from Exodus 24. It is a Sinai echo that Jesus speaks on a mountain just like Moses. And so in Exodus 24, 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. You see here that for Jews to encounter Jesus giving this great commission is analogical, is parallel, echoes the presence of God before Moses as the servant of his people giving his law. But Daniel seven thirteen and 14 uh, echoes even more the anticipation that there will be one favorite by the Father who will carry enormous universal authority and power just like Jesus claims in this great commission. There in Daniel seven thirteen it says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, namely to the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
It's overwhelming to see that. This morning in our reading, we already heard Psalm 110. Thank you for reading that. Uh, it is a parallel passage in which, in which this eternal rule is being anticipated. But here is another echo from the Old Testament to this great commission that Jesus as the soon-to-be-enthroned king gives to his disciples in Psalm 96, verses 1 to 3. There, the psalmist speaks about the proclamation of the royal salvation bringer. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Yeshua, salvation. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Jesus, as soon to be enthroned king, simply passes to his disciples what has long been anticipated to be the task of the people of God. And then Jesus here in this uh, great commission says, make disciples. Teach them to keep what I have commanded. And for Jewish ears, that may be, what did Jesus command that I need to do? What did Moses command that we needed to do? You might fall into that. But you see that the heart of the commandment of Christ is to let go and to receive the atonement of Christ. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that to keep what Jesus taught is to follow him into his radical call of discipleship, of letting go, and of becoming a dependent follower of Christ. That is keeping Christ's commandment, and then obviously he will work fruit of godliness in our life out of this basis of dependency. So uh, Jesus, as the new uh, law teacher, as the messianic um, Moses, a prophet like Moses, goes beyond the law and shapes a heart that is capable of living according to the ways of God. And so uh, the last echo that I want to give you is a very well-known passage from Isaiah 7, verse 14. You may not have put that together with the Great Commission. Uh, we often read that at Christmas, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And at the end of this great commission, the soon-to-be-enthroned king says, I will be with you. And we heard that already this morning with the children's sermon. The means by which Jesus will be with us today is through the gift of the Spirit of God. It also echoes Deuteronomy 31.8, where it says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
So this is a majestic declaration that brings together much of the Old Testament and trains it on the purposes of God of making this little micro-people of God to understand the purposes of God. So here we see that the eternal rule of Christ um, is magnificent, is glorious, is uh, joy-inducing, and yet some of us have a hard time believing that. Matt Phillips spoke about the difficulty of our lives last Sunday and the glory to which we are moving towards and how easy it is to be so focused on our present circumstances rather than to see the promises and the reality of what God brings to us. And so in some ways we are continuing that same theme. Do you believe in the eternal rule of Christ today? Can you? Can you come there when you see a world in disarray, a world in abuse of civil governance, in confusion, all kinds of things that would make us very concerned and very worried? Is Jesus really ruling we can go deeply into these texts and marvel what they, what they affirm. And so uh, Ron wanted me to share from uh, George Kennan, a U.S. diplomat in Eastern Europe during the Cold War era, of what he says in a letter to his uh, sister Jeannette on December 7, 1940, uh, from Prague. And this is a little melancholic. This is very raw and very sobering. And here we see the contrast, the, the, the disheartening uh, truth of civil governance and somehow the distant reality of the rule of Christ. And I hope I can encourage you this morning to return, to put your weight on the declaration of the established king. Trust it, believe it, but first take in this melancholic letter. This is George Kennan, uh, December 7, 1940, Prague. Dear Jeanette, in all the history of Bohemia, there have never been any clear issues, any complete victories, or any complete defeats. I know no place which makes more mockery of the present, no place where one is more conscious of the transience of oneself and one's own generation and of everything that is being done. The consulate general, which is the U.S. consulate general, uh, was closed several weeks ago. So December 7, several weeks prior to that in 1940, the Prague U.S. embassy was vacated. George Kennan here says, I'm continuing the quote, I am more or less responsible for the arrangements made for the custody and preservation of the property which belongs to the government. I walk around the premises of the old palace that once housed our legation. 
give orders for the repair of a retaining wall in the garden, decide what shall be planted next spring, make plans for the disposal of the old, unused Renaissance wing, ponder the condition of the wooden frames of the 3,000-odd window panes. All the time I'm conscious of the fact that all this has been done hundreds of times before over the ages by innumerable counts and cardinals and custodians, architects, that each time it was done, it seemed important to the people who were doing it, that they had some sort of plans for the utilization of the great structure. And then he turns to having the building speak. So this is not George Kennan anymore. He is imagining the building, this great uh, consulate, former consulate general speaking, uh, consulate general uh, building. Man built me as a framework for great doings, for lofty decisions, for the exercise of power. I was to symbolize his strength and his grandeur. And yet all the centuries of my existence, there have not been five years in a hundred when he was able to fill my walls with anything remotely adequate, remotely representative. My rooms have stood year after year, cold and empty. No horses stamp in my marble stables. Owner after owner has either lost the means or lacked the stature to walk through my halls as one who belonged to them. Either princes of the church have lived for poverty in my servants' quarters, or mean little men, awed by massive ceilings and lofty walls, lonely and uneasy in these trappings of greatness, have camped like mice in my most splendid chambers. I've been a dream in which man has never been able to live up. And meanwhile, the seasons have come and gone. He describes that a little bit, and I'm skipping a little bit. All this I have seen. It has remained this way for centuries. It will remain this way for centuries to come. Nothing has changed very much. No one has lasted very long. And now you come, uh, the building speaking to George Cannon, in a little brief authority. You tinker around like the rest of them, and you dream your dreams of putting me to use. And yet you are intelligent enough to know that you too are here only for a day. That you and all you stand for will soon be gone but that I shall stand on superior to those that created me, a monument to man's folly and inadequacy, a mockery of his endeavors. Now, I warned you that this was a little bit melancholic. Uh, Maybe um, uh, uh, the uh, author, uh, George Kennan, was of Slavic descent, U.S. American ambassador, but uh, it is sober in terms of the fleeting nature of civil governance. So what is our path? I briefly want to encourage you with a few glimpses. 
the work of John and Tanya Kudi in St. Petersburg and a few people that I met in Ukraine. These people that I'm going to mention to you are neither convincing you that God rules nor impressing you that they are able to deal with very difficult civil governance. But they are an encouragement that the eternally ruling Christ is at work among his people amidst the temporary civil rules, whatever their nature. I believe there is the power of the rule of Christ that it endures through the ages. Uh, we've already heard from John and Tanya Kudi a little bit. Matt has mentioned them. Uh, John is beginning a leadership seminar on May 11. This is a very important work to help Slavic leaders steer away from a Ivan the Terrible leadership style and to move towards the strength that is found in leading in humble dependence on the powerful God. So he will be doing that, and he says, each time we send them out to go back to their cities after these uh, seminars, we feel as if we're sending missionaries out to do the work of the kingdom. So uh, we've already prayed for them, but this is a crucial uh, work. The other issue that um, John mentions is that as a U.S. American citizen, he may not have a renewal of his um, visa to work in Russia. So there are questions at this point whether the Russian government will allow him as a U.S. citizen to work in a Russian-based Christian university in St. Petersburg. So we need to pray for this and trust in the issue of this particular circumstance that God is ruling even though our eyes don't see it as well as we would like to. But we need to trust that even in this situation with our beloved friends John and Tanya and Mark and what is her name? Anna, uh, that God is doing his work. He's ruling in their hearts and through their lives. The second one is Sergei, uh, that I met this uh, March in uh, uh, Kiev, in Ukraine. Sergei is a pastor from Crimea, and I cannot develop the politics of Crimea, the history of it and the current circumstance, but you have heard that it was annexed by Russia um, uh, not too long ago. When this annexation happened, the Ukrainian Sergei had to move to mainland Ukraine. He went to Kiev and wondered what is next. Uh, He told me that he was a thief and that he learned English when in prison. Now, thief, he meant thief. But he wasn't just a thief. He was a member of an organized robbery group uh, and went to jail for six years for that. Anyway, he learned English, became a pastor in Crimea, had to leave Crimea after it was annexed, uh, was in Kiev and was asked by a Korean uh, church planting and pastoring team, 
whether he would go to Crimea and take over a church that the Korean minister could not be uh, pastoring anymore because of his non-Russian uh, status. And so Sergei, and this is hair-raising in some ways, remembered that he had Russian relatives, went to Moscow, associated with his relatives, got a Russian passport, went back to Crimea, and is now pastoring as a former Pentecostal pastor, a reformed Korean church in Crimea, and there's lots of blessing there. And so I'm telling you this story, which has a lot of rough edges to it, just to say God has strange ways to accomplish his work regardless of the hair-raising political circumstances surrounding, for instance, Crimea. Another uh, example I want to give you before I close is Sergei and Anna Franchuk. They're a young couple, 40 years old, very young. Um, and they're both musicians, very gifted. They have a wonderful hand with youth in the city in Ukraine where they live. And they told me this time when I met them again that they are not able to have children. And so they are thinking of reaching out to children uh, who are in need. Anna and Sergei are very gifted worship leaders. They compose um, hymns and songs. Uh, they have published CDs. They're even now moving into the Finnish uh, a Christian world uh, in terms of their music. It is amazing with so little that they have that they joyfully serve that God who is ruling. They are convinced he's ruling. They have a loose hand with regard to the current Ukrainian civil governance. They pray for them. They hope that there will be less corruption, but they serve the ruling, reigning Christ. And the last one that I wanted to mention to you is Igor. Igor was a quiet man in the back of the room of these 40 pastors. Very sad, straight face. M virtually no movement. He didn't take notes. He just sat there. Uh, one day I saw a picture of him in a little magazine that they had passed out and in that magazine it said it showed him in prison doing prison ministry. And so I went to him and asked him, tell me a little bit about your life. And he said, well, <clears throat> I was in prison five times, 15 years altogether for drug and alcohol abuse, criminal activity, and then God changed my heart. I am now a husband, a father, a pastor, and I have a prison ministry. I don't have any money, but God is good. He has changed my life, and I want to go into prisons to help these people see that difference. And so uh, Igor uh, is an example for me of how Christ rules where we don't see his rule, how Christ changes hearts where we may not see it or hear of it unless somebody reports it to you, and how we are challenged 
not just to read the Great Commission or other texts that speak about the royal dominion of Christ and say, that sounds wonderful, but now let's get back to mundane politics. But to actually say, civil governments, governance is important. We must pray, we must be engaged, we must be involved. But it is passing, it is fleeting, it is temporal. And above all and at the heart of it, Christ indeed rules. He wants to rule over your heart and then over our congregation and then more than that into our societies and cultures. And so while I have not given you any help in dealing with the civil governance questions and election issues, I hope that you see that there is a context within which we, as followers of Christ, can rest and then act, knowing that the eternal rule of Christ is a fulfillment of the desire and the design of God with this creation, fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he is going to realize it as we have read in Revelation. It is happening. It is bound to be the conclusion. Whatever the obstacles and the harrowing journey before then. So be heartened that Christ is ruling. And tell him in your prayers when you doubt, when you struggle. And let him convince you through his word and through his work that indeed he is the Lord of rulers. He's the Lord of this history. And obviously, there are harrowing and painful questions that rise through that. But at least, there is an oasis of peace from which we can look at these difficult questions that we all face. So let us remember that the Great Commission is the declaration of the soon-to-be and now established ruler Christ and he rules in surprising ways and let him surprise you. May God bless you.